I've been doing a lot of reading in some different ways uh, this past week for a couple of things, and just wanted to share a couple of quotes that I came across. They don't connect directly to Judges, but um, as we go through all of these stories, I know people are starting to ask, you know, why do we have to get to these stories? Why did God put these stories like this um, in, in the Bible? And maybe stories aren't your, your cup of tea, but I did run across a quote that I really liked this past week. It says this. It's, a, it's an American Indian proverb. It says this. Tell me the facts and I will learn. Tell me the truth and I will believe. Tell me a story and it will live in my heart forever. Um, I think there's something good about that. These stories, uh, these Bible stories, that's when we tell them to the children. We don't always tell them accurately to the children, but these stories are designed to live in your heart. There's something real about it, something that you can identify with. Um, and we've been telling stories of these judges as they have continually gotten worse and worse. And, and the mess of the world and the mess of their lives just continues to get worse and worse. And uh, we're going to meet a new guy this week. His name is Jephthah. Um, we spent a couple weeks looking at, at, first of all, his rise to power and what happens there. And then we're going to see just the disaster that he leaves uh, at the end of his life, both personally and nationally looking at all of this. And he's, he's an outcast, but he's going to become a general. Um, and, and this is in the context, the, the entire nation is just constantly going downhill, downhill. And because of their idolatry, God has said in chapter 9 and beginning into chapter 10 that he's not going to deliver them like he's been delivering them anymore. <laughs> they stepped over a line. He's still going to carry out his purposes and he's going to accomplish everything that he set out to accomplish. Um, but they have put themselves in a position that he's, he's going to treat them differently. And that really begins in this Jephthah section. Um, but idolatry, uh, leadership, the lack of leadership, God being in control of these natural events and having to use less than worthy leaders, these are all the themes that are in the book of Judges. Um, but at the core of it, there's this growing sense of idolatry. One of the commentators frames Judges as it's the canonization of Israel. <laughs> when you get to the end of the book, and when we get there, you'll see this. Israel looks like Sodom and Gomorrah. God's people can't be distinguished from the world because um, of their idolatry. And the, the idolatry really is who they're worshiping, but because of who they're worshiping, how they behave. Um, Graham Cole, in a book that I'm reading on the Holy Spirit for my Thursday morning men's Bible study at six o'clock here. Um, Graham Cole says this, there is no higher pursuit than the worship of God. In fact, we become like the God we adore and serve for good or ill. It all depends on the nature of the God or gods we follow. If we follow the living God of biblical revelation, then we will image him. If we follow idols, we will image them. Um, and we're even going to see that in, in this story because of the idolatry that's rampant. And, and for Jephthah, it's not so much that we see him worshiping other gods. It's that he's, he's not aware of who his own God is. He, he does some of the things you would expect um, a Bible-reading person to do. He just doesn't embrace it and, and apply it in his life. Jephthah's a fascinating character. Um, I also want to point out one thing before we jump into the story. Um, the events that are taking place in this Jephthah story all take place um, 
on what is going to be the east side of the Jordan River. I've got the Jordan River circled there. And the main settlements of the 12 tribes of Israel that Joshua led them in to take over, the main settlements are all on the west side of the Jordan River, between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. But there were two and a half tribes that were allowed to settle on the east side of the Jordan River. Um, All of these stories we're reading today are all about um, east side stories. That's what they are. Um, I've also got on that map there a number of uh, little explosions. The, The little explosions are by the question marks, just highlighting there are a lot of these cities, we don't know where they are. Um, a lot of these cities, because they're over in um, much less populated areas, um, we, ha- we have some ideas of where they might be, but, but we don't really know exact locations for a lot of these places. But all of this story is taking place over on the east side of the Jordan River, um, which makes it a really interesting thing, particularly in the second thing that we'll look at next week. So today, what we're going to really see is we're going to see um, Jephthah arrive on the scene and who he is, um, how he's made to be a leader, and then his first negotiations. There's kind of three movements in here. First of all, we're going to see that um, Jephthah, who's, who really is an outcast, he's, a, he's going to become a thug. Um, he's part of a family. They push him out, and he... Um, he gathers around him a group of people that allows him to become one of these judges, kind of a warlord or a chieftain, um, but he doesn't have character. And um, what we're going to see is when God's people abandon God as, his, as the priority, um, families eventually disintegrate into chaotic battlegrounds. If, by the way, I don't know if you know this, families are really tough because <laughs> you're always around them. Um, you see them at their worst, and so uh, families can be very difficult to navigate and to manage and to get around, and, and families often become the place where the chaos just emanates out of. And we're going to see that uh, with Jephthah. Here, here's how the story begins. Now, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife had borne him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you're the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tov, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. Um, Pretty straightforward reading here. This guy's a mighty warrior. Um, He's got some brothers and sisters, but his particular mom... Uh, Gilead had a number of different uh, women that were around him. Uh, another, just kind of, at this point, it just has, is part of the normal narrative. Oh, yeah, certainly, there's a lot of polygamy going on. Um, but he, Gilead, his father, um, had relations with a prostitute, and Jephthah was the result of that. Now, his half-brothers, who were from another mother, um, they, when they grew up, said, hey, we don't want anything with you. And they're saying that because he's this mighty warrior. He's, he's a guy who has some influence. And so they run him off, and he goes to live in the land of Tov. We don't know where it is. It's actually a word that means good. He goes to land in, live in Goodville. Um, but he gathers these worthless fellows around him. Robert Chisholm says this, At first, A first-time reader, while undoubtedly sympathetic <clears throat> to Jephthah's plight as an underdog and an outcast, he's being treated poorly, 
should have some serious reservations about his qualifications. For Jephthah resembles Abimelech in certain respects. He's gathering these ruffians around him. He's an outcast. He's the son of a prostitute. These are all the, the same parallels that were true of Abimelech, who we're not even calling a judge in studying this. He's not a judge. He's just a guy who sets himself up as a king. He slaughters all of his brothers. He kills people in two different cities. Um, Abimelech is just out of control, and Jephthah looks a lot like him. But God's going to use him. He, this guy is going to be a judge. Um, things have gotten so bad that, that God is going to use him. And he's a, he's a mighty warrior, mighty man of valor. Um, this is a person who, who has a lot of influence in the community. And that can be for good or bad. Um, in our next story that we're actually going to eventually get to in, in the book of Ruth, Boaz, who's this romantic hero of the story, he's called this as well. Um, he, he's a man of influence in the, in the story. He's a man who, who um, can make main big decisions in the town. He's a man who, who makes provision for other people. He employs a lot of people. Um, so th- the idea of this is it's a person who has a lot of influence, but you can get that influence in either good ways because of your character, or you can get that influence in bad ways because you manipulate things. Um, and then he gathers these worthless fellows around him. Um, these worthless fellows, uh, Barry Webb calls social mit- misfits. Uh, one of these words is used for the people who are around Abimelech. Um, but the, the, the idea here is he, is he is gathering around him a bunch of outcasts. They, he's been outcast to the, the city of, of Tov. We don't even know where it is, but it's kind of out in the desert somewhere. And, and the guys who are out there in the desert, they gather around him. And now they're, they've, got, they've got a group of guys who are wanting to to come together to make trouble, really, is what they're going to do. Um, so he's, he's out there, and he's out east of the Jordan River in the wilderness, and he's got this gang of ruffians around him, and he rises to the, to the class of um, influential leader in the area. Um, he's, he's influential, but he's a, you're a little bit scared of him, um, is what's going on here. And so the elders of Gilead... These are the people who settled on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Um, they're going to go and ask him to become their general. But notice the negotiations that take place. Um, God's people are going to take matters into their own hands, and the results are going to be disastrous. One of the things that you're going to notice in this passage is the overwhelming sense that God's not involved. God's not making him a judge. God's not selecting him. Um, the, the Spirit is going to come upon him at, at certain points, um, but, but God doesn't make him a judge. The people make him a judge. They're going to evoke God, and they're going to mention his name. He's going to tell stories about God, but in terms of God being in control of everything going on in, in some overt way because they're wanting that to happen, you just don't see that in the passage. The, the the absence of God just screams at you in this story in a way that it doesn't in, in other stories. Um, and, and with that, this story is going to be very confusing, <laughs> and it's going to really result in absolute chaos that really expresses itself when what we'll see next week. Um, so here we go. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. I'm going to start really quickly here. The Ammonites are not the Amorites. Okay? This is very confusing in the passage, but just want to remind you, 
These are Ammonites, not Amorites. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tov, and they said to Jephthah, come be our leader, be our commander, be our general, that we may fight against the Ammonites. Now I'm going to tell you, at the end of our last chapter, when we were in uh, chapter 10, these Gileadite leaders said, anyone who will help deliver us, we'll make him the, the head of our, our group. Now they're offering a little bit less to him. Okay? They've said, you can be the head. Now they're saying, you come and be the, the commander. A um, little bit different word. You be our general, not our patriarch, is what's going on here. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out from my father's house? Weren't you part of the guys who ran me off? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, This is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. It changes a little bit here if you're reading closely. They say, Hey, will you come be our general? He goes, Hey, you've treated me badly. You're going to have to make a better offer than that. And they come back and they say, Okay, we'll let you be the head of everything. Jephthah said to the elders in Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. Okay? If you bring me home to fight, and if I win, if I win the fight, then I'll be the head, I'll be the patriarch, I'll be back into the position I was before, and I'll be in a position to have all of the privileges and the rights that all my brothers ran me out of. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you ask. So Jephthah with the elders in Gilead and the people made him head and leader. Now he's the head and he's the commander. So he's the patriarch of the Gileadites and he's their army general. And Jephthah spoke all these words before the Lord at Mizpah. Um, now, the Lord is here. They're speaking these words. They have some sense of, okay, the Lord's a part of our life. <laughs> okay? But... Do you notice what's happening here? The Ammonites are attacking, and here the people don't cry out to the Lord. I've been a little critical of people crying out to the Lord before, because I'm telling you, crying out to the Lord in the book of Judges is not full repentance. It's just we're in this bad spot. These guys don't even cry out to the Lord. The Ammonites are attacking. They don't cry out to the Lord. They just go find themselves this ruffian chieftain warlord who's living out in the desert, and grab him and his guys and say, come and help deliver us. Um, another step down in the progress of this book. Um, they're not even crying out to the Lord anymore. They're, they're taking matters into their own, own hands, and they're, they're trying to find their own solution. Barry Webb says, Jephthah appears to be a man-made judge rather than a divinely called one. Um, he's going to be used. There's nothing that happens that isn't under God's sovereign control. Romans 13 tells us that, that all of the, the rulers in the world are appointed by God. And, and when Paul is writing that in Romans 13, Nero, who's persecuting Christians severely, Nero is the Roman emperor. So even, even evil people, even bad people are appointed by God. God is, is using this. But these people... They're not crying out to God for a solution. They're trying to find their own solution. And the guy they find is a roughneck out in the wilderness with his group of ruffians around him. 
Um, and so now he's in charge. At this point, he's the patriarch of the family, and he's the general of the ruffian army. Now, my guess is that the Gileadites said, okay, and we'll give you some of our men. We'll, we'll be with you. It's not just you and your ruffians. We're jumping in here with you. And so now what's going to happen is um, there's going to be some negotiations, okay? Now, this is going to really get confusing because we're going to have Ammonites and Aborites and stories that they're very familiar with, but we're not as familiar with. Um, I'm going to try to walk you through how he tells the story, um, and he's going to get it all wrong, although it looks like it's all right. I guarantee you, if you read through this and nobody was telling you, look for the holes, you'd read through it and you would basically say, oh yeah, I mean, he tells the Old Testament story and this makes sense. That's how you'd read it. There are a few things in there that show you he's missing the point. But even when this man-made leader who's missing the point is, I think, picking a fight, God is... Um, going to still be faithful to his people. This is a further picture of God's people moving farther and farther away from him, um, even in choosing for themselves, not just God, God choosing people that he has to use because they're less than qualified, but this is the people choosing for themselves a less than qualified leader. But God is still going to be faithful to accomplish his task. But, but in reading the story, I want to make a, an application here. Um, when God's people are not acting like God's people, the entire scene gets confusing, okay? And that's, you're going to see that in this passage. When, when we're reading and interpreting Jephthah, it's a mess. It is really confusing. I just want to, I want to let you know that the, really the only way to straighten all this out is to go back and read Numbers 20 and 24 and Deuteronomy 1 and 2, and get a couple of colored pencils and draw circles around the name Ammonite and Amorite and Moabite and, and make sure you're connecting who's who through the whole story. I'm going to try to do that as best as I can. Um, but the whole thing is very confusing because this roughneck Jephthah is going to be telling the story, and he's not a spiritual guy. Um, and he's also using the story to to pick a fight. Um, if you'll remember, what he says is, if you install me and I win, I get all my inheritances back. Then, I, then I'm back in the family. I'm head of the family. He's not trying to avoid a fight, even though it may seem like it. This is politics, folks. <laughs> he may seem like he's trying to avoid a fight. He is picking a fight. Um, in the midst of trying to straighten all this out, I actually started texting with, with Dr. Michelle Knight this past week, and here's one of the things she sent back to me. She, she said, I take my interpretive move from the attribution of any gift at all to a God other than Yahweh. Sure, it was polytheistic culture, but the entire book of Joshua expected other kings to admit that Yahweh was king and no one else. That detail, plus at least, and this is what I was saying, there's some minor misreads of the Israelites' history, that detail, plus these minor misreadings of the, of the history, shows a looser relationship with the truth of God's work in the world than the historical books seem to allow. He's going to miss up the history a little bit, but the biggest thing that's going to happen is <clears throat> near the end of his negotiations, 
he's going to say, our God, gave, <coughs> excuse me, our God gave us what our God gave us, and your God gave you what your God gave you. So let's just take what our gods gave us. And, and the idea is, n- no, God is the one who's the distributor of all of this. Here we go. Look, I'm trying to set it up so we can move through this as quickly as we can. This is a mess. It's a confusing story. He's telling, re, retelling the story of the Israelites coming out of um, Egypt and going up to the promised land. And he's going to tell about one event that, that actually doesn't connect with the Ammonites. That's the problem. Uh, it, the Ammonites aren't really a part of the story. Um, and, and as he's telling it, He's going to get a couple of details wrong. He's going to leave a few things out. And then at the end, he's really going to mess it up when he goes, let's just take what our God gives us. And the reality is in Judges, God's, Yahweh's the only God. Let's go. <laughs> then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, what do you have against me that you have come to me to fight against my land? By the way, if you've got an NIV or maybe some other translation, um, they translate that as, what do you have against us that you have come to us to fight against our land? Very clearly, me, my, my. Uh, he is, he's personalizing this. This is about him. Um, he, he's basically saying, what have you, what's your problem with me? Um, he's putting himself at the center of it. The king of the Ammonites answered the messenger of Jephthah, because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, from these river boundaries, and to the Jordan, now therefore restore it peaceably. Um, we're going to find out this is 300 years earlier. 300 years ago, when you guys came out of Egypt, you took our land, and I want it back. Does this sound vaguely contemporary? political negotiations, we won a war, you took our land, we want it back. Um, as this unfolds, Dan Block does a, a good job helping us move through this, he's going to give a historical argument, we won the battle back then, and if we won the battle, we get the land. Um, he's going to give a theological argument, this is a, his biggest problem, um, our God gave us our land, your God can give you whatever land he can give you. Um, then he's going to go personal, and he's going to go, nobody's arguing with us now, why are you arguing? And then a chronological argument. It's been 300 years. Why, why, what's the problem now? Um, here's what's, what's going to happen. Um, he's going to talk about the Jews coming out of Israel, and as they come out of Israel, they're going to go south to Sinai. They're going to come back up, and um, they're going to go to Kadesh Barnea at the southern part of the land, send in the 12 spies. He's not going to talk about all this. They send in the 12 spies. They decide they're not going to go into the land. They wander in the desert for 40 years. And then at the end of that 40 years of wandering, they come back in, but they don't come back up to the south of the land where Kadesh Barnea is. They're going to come back up on the east side of the Jordan River. And when they get there, they're going to encounter uh, the, the Moabites and they're going to encounter the Edomites. And both of them are going to say, no, you can't come through our land. The Moabites and the Edomites are Esau's children. So Jacob, 12 tribes of Israel, Esau, Moabites, Edomites, these are cousins. And they're going to go to their cousins and say, hey, God gave us that land. Will you let us pass through so we can get in there? Both of them are going to say no. So they're going to pass by 
and they're going to go up north, and then they're going to cross in. When they cross in, there's going to be this one guy, Sion. Um, he's a Moabite, and he's going to say, um, hey, I'm not letting you cross at all. And so he goes to war, and they win a war against him. This is the, the movement of what he's going to describe. The biggest thing he's describing here is we tried to go through Moab and, and Edom, and they didn't let us. So we went around them peaceably. Then when we went into the land, we fought one battle, um, and we won. So that's why we have this part of the land. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, Thus says Jephthah. By the way, that just sounds wrong. I'm just highlighting it. If you're, if you're negotiating for the Lord, you need a thus says the Lord. Not a thus says Jephthah. Um, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom saying, please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon River, one of these boundaries he's talking about. But they did not enter into the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. So they're not taking anything that um, the Moabites are given. They've gone around that land. Israel then sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites. He's not an Ammonite, Okay. He's not an Ammonite, he's an Amorite, okay? Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon, and Israel said to him, please let us pass through the land to our country. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through the territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. So now we've got an Amorite fighting with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the land of Israel and they defeated them. So now they have passed around the Moabites and the Edomites, and they have defeated the Amorites. We're still not talking about any Ammonites. Who, this is who he's negotiating with. He's, he's negotiating with the Amorites. Does anybody feel like we're talking about Eastern Europe here in countries, and who's the stands, and who, where's that? And what, what, I didn't even know there was a Moldovan border on Ukraine. I mean, it, it feels a little bit like that. So Israel put, took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country, and they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to Jordan. Again, I want to tell you, Amorites are not Ammonites. The king of Ammon is saying, give us our land back. And he's going to say, we passed by Moab, we passed by Edom, and we defeated the Amorites. So if I'm an Ammonite, I'm going to go, I don't really care. You're, you're telling the story in a way that I, I really don't, it doesn't apply here. He knows the story, but he's using it selfishly. And he's going to skip some important parts. He's going to misread this thing. Um, I, I'm going to highlight the things I think he's getting wrong. Why do you have this against me and my country? He's a little bit narcissistic there. Um, he's mixing up Ammon with Moab and Edom in the detour around Edom. He's pulling Ammonite into that, and they're not a part of it at all. Um, he's ignoring Deuteronomy 2.16. I'm going to get to that in a minute. Which said that they should leave Ammon alone. When they're getting ready to go up there 
and, and cross by Moab and Ammon, uh, Moab and Edom, God's going to tell them, leave the Ammonites alone. They can have their land. I do think the key is he attributes the distribution of the land rights to Yahweh um, and Shemash. You're going to see that in a couple of verses. And then the other thing is, I think he's just plain being political. Can I just stop there? Just, he's just being political. That's bad. Um, Kenneth Way says, Jephthah demonstrates his ignorance of the Torah when he infers that the Ammonites received their land from their God. On the contrary, they received it from Yahweh. See our key verse, Deuteronomy 2.19. And when he infers that Yahweh has a limited localized domain that is functionally parallel to that of the Ammonite deity, Chemosh. I'm setting you up for what he's going to say in a little bit. Lawson Younger says, Jephthah's theological error is compounded. Not only does he, he's talking about the wrong people, um, it's compounded by the fact that Deuteronomy 2.19 specifically states that Yahweh has given the Ammonites their own land as their possession. This is a comment on Jephthah's ignorance of the law and will have implications later with reference to his vow and his daughters. He's telling the story. And if I just dropped you down in the book of Judges and let you read Jephthah telling the story, you'd go, oh, this guy knows his Bible. But he's getting little pieces wrong. He's using it for his own self-interest. And that lack of precision is going to really get him in trouble. It's really going to get him in trouble. Um, finally, let me get you to Deuteronomy 2.19. Here's, here's what Deuteronomy says. This, and by the way, this is in the middle of the retelling of the story of what he's talking about. When you approach the border of the Ammonites... You shall not harass them, and you shall not get involved in battle with them, for I have not given the land of the Ammonites to you as a possession, because I have given it to the descendants of Lot as a possession. The Ammonites um, are, are one of the descendants of Lot, and the descendants of Esau the descendants of, and the descendants of Lot, they're, they're both supposed to get their own part of the inheritance. And he says, leave them alone, they're supposed to get their part of the land. And Jephthah's leaving that out of the negotiations. Stop to make a point here. Do you know the story or are you living the life? Just because you know the Bible stories and can sing the songs of your youth, that doesn't mean that you're qualified to lead or are really living the Christian life. Just because you can tell the stories, you may quote them, get them out of context. You may, you know, say, oh yeah, the Bible says a penny saved is a penny earned. It doesn't say that. Or, you know, money's the root of all evil. Doesn't say that. The love of money is the roots of all sorts of evil. Um, How well do you know your Bible? Do you kind of know the stories? And do you know them well enough that you only use them for your own selfish purposes? Or do you allow them to really Uh, guide you and say, okay, what should I do with this Ammonite guy? And do I know the story well enough to go, you know what? They should be able to have their land. Um, Just because you know the stories, and you may only know them like Jephthah knows them, doesn't mean you're qualified to lead or doesn't mean that you're actually living the Christian life. Um, Let's keep going with what Jephthah does here. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites, this is Jephthah still telling the story, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people, and are you to take possession of them? Again, he's talking to an Ammonite, not an Amorite. Will you not possess what Chemosh your God gives you to possess? 
and all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. This is what most people identify as his fatal flaw, is he's, he's saying, our God gives land, your God gives land, rather than saying there's only one God and he's distributed and we'll take the fair allotment of what he says. He's, he's basically putting Shamash on par with Yahweh. And, and this is going to be a huge problem. And you may be looking and going, ah, but you know, uh, he's just talking in this guy's language. At this point, I want to take you back to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, when, when Satan is tempting Eve, Eve almost gets it right. But there's some precision that she misses, and it leads to all the trouble we're in now. It leads to the first temptation overtaking Adam and Eve, sin coming into the world, and the need for Jesus Christ. Because God has told them this. God has said, um, listen, you guys in the garden, you can freely eat from any tree in the middle of the garden. Any, any tree in the garden. But the, the tree that's in the middle of the garden, you can't eat from it. And if you do, you will surely die. You can freely eat. Don't eat from this one. You will surely die. Here's what Eve says when the serpent says, did God really say this? Eve says, we can eat from the tree in the middle of the garden, or all the trees in the garden, but the tree in the middle, we can't eat from it or even touch it, or we will die. God said, you will surely die. She says, I'll die. God says, you can't eat from it. She says, I can't eat from it or even touch it. God says, he says, you can freely eat. She simply says she can eat. God says, you can't eat. She says, I can't eat or touch it. God says, you will surely die. She simply says, I'll die. That's really nitpicky. But it set up the very first sin that happened in the history of the world. Knowing God's word well and being able to apply it and being able to say, you know what, Yahweh's the one who distributes all land. And I actually know, the, know it well enough to know that he said, the Ammonites get to get their land. He's going to move on with another argument. Now, are you better than Balak, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel, or did he ever go to war against them? Well, Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, and in Aor, its villages, and in all the cities that are in the banks of the Arnon, 300 years. Why did you not, uh, why did you not deliver them uh, within that time? He's basically saying, listen, nobody else is making trouble about this. It's been this way for 3,000 years or 300 years. Why are you waiting so long? Abe Curavilla says this. This parley, then, is not an attempt at peace, especially since Jephthah has been hired expressly to fight. And by the way, if he wins the fight, he gets his inheritance back. Therefore, all of Jephthah's verbosity from the very start of the negotiations comprise a declaration of war, hardly negotiations, these were preludes to battle. He's picking a fight. Jephthah concludes, I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decides this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. He already did, and he said they get their land. But the king of the Am Amorites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to them. 
it doesn't work. <laughs> he, does, he, he doesn't listen and say, leave us alone. And, and he's, he's not even wanting them to leave him alone. He wants to win the battle because he's been hired to fight. And if he wins the fight, he becomes the head of the group. Uh, a couple of lists here. Kenneth Way uh, concludes, God's, God appears to be withdrawn from the events. He shows up a couple times when people are mentioning him, but God's not active. God doesn't find the deliverer. Um, God doesn't call him. Jephthah's rise is due to human initiatives. Jephthah comes from a flawed family. Jephthah's acting manipulatively and selfishly. The Gileadites are acting manipulatively and selfishly. Jephthah is biblically confused and he's theologically ignorant, but yet God is the God who's going to bring justice. Um, There's a lot wrong with this story. (laughs) And if you first read it, you might be tempted to go, oh, he's telling the Old Testament story. This guy should leave him alone. He's using the word of God manipulatively and and his theology, and and it's going to become much clearer in the next section. His theology is wrong. He doesn't really understand who God is. He does not understand who God is. So here's how I, in this, while he may have to use thugs and ruffians, narcissists and warmongers, bad theology and manipulation, God's always advancing his purposes. This, this, this whole thing has degenerated to the point where God's hardly involved in the story. They're just kind of evoking his name here and there and telling stories but misusing them. But God's still going to save his people still going to advance his story. He's still going to make it clear. Um, there are, um, there, there's a need for someone other than these superstar leaders. You need a king. He's going to start saying that in a couple chapters. There's no king in the land. Then they're going to get a king, but he's not the right king. They need the Lord Jesus Christ as their king. Um, an application before some next steps. When human powers collide, God is still sovereign. If you're wondering what's going on in their world or our world. (laughs) Whether it is Ammon in Israel or Russia in Ukraine, the real judge and distributor of land rights is the Lord Almighty. Chemosh doesn't do it. Um, The UN doesn't do it. It, By the way, it's all a mess that'll never be straightened out until the Lord comes back and establishes his reign. So here's a few next steps to think about. From a a complex, confusing passage of a guy who gets himself to be the leader of the nation and then doesn't really know God very well and know the story. He knows the stories, but he doesn't know them well, and he doesn't know how to use them. Thank thank God for his grace. God, God uses us even when we're not fully qualified. Sometimes God has to use less than qualified people. Present company not excluded. <laughs> but not without complications. When very unqualified people step into leadership, God can still use it to accomplish his purpose, but it usually creates chaos around them. And there's a warning here. Just because you kind of know God's story doesn't mean you can apply it well. I I, I really want to encourage you to become more of a student of God's Word. Um, And not just because you're reading through it, but because you're reading through it and you're saying, 
what does this really mean? How does this fit together? Um, Become comfortable in God's story. And know God's story, not so you can use it for your own selfish purposes, but so that you can become a part of it. Know the story of God so you can say, you know what? (laughs) I see God's people being kind and helpful to immigrants and aliens around, and I see God's people prioritizing loving um, their neighbors, and I see God's people uh, prioritizing sharing the gospel and making disciples. I know God's story well enough that that's what I'm going to do. I don't see God's people clamoring for power and more possessions. Read God's story so that you know how you can be a part of it when the opportunities arise. Father, in the midst of a uh, troubling story in the Bible that's going to even just get more troubling, I pray that the challenge here is for us to not degenerate into pursuing our own selfish agendas and using you as a part of that. Father, I pray that what we will do is submit ourselves to, um, to your purposes that we will submit ourselves um, to knowing you and your character, knowing what you really say in your word. So, Father, I pray that you would um, focus our attention on the things that are important. And that's almost never our own agendas.